What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. You're listening to Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, baby! Hey, everybody. Welcome to Impact Theory. Today's guest is Yancey Strickler. He's the co-founder and former CEO of the game-changing company Kickstarter, which gave birth to the now massively successful crowdfunding model. He's also an author and speaker who was recognized by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader and by Fast Company on their vaunted most creative people list. Proving his bona fides as a very unique thinker in his new book, This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world, he has given birth to an incredible new idea that he calls bentoism, something he hopes will radically overhaul our approach to living life and defining what's valuable. Yancey, welcome to the show, man. Thanks. That was so rad. I'm like looking for the other person in the call so I can <laughs> congratulate them. Yeah, I, I think we will you. find them very rapidly. Dude, I love, love the way that you talk about being a CEO, the way that you talk about dealing with insecurities and feeling like you weren't the, you know, the sort of thing that everybody holds up as a typical Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Um, there is something about the way that you think about the world and that you process through it that I find not only engaging, but very accessible. And so when I think about people that are going to help shape how we move forward, um, it's people that can process like that. Um, and I'd love to hear your assessment of what the, the problem is, how we've sort of gotten obsessed with perhaps the wrong value system. Um, and then we'll obviously get into bentoism and all that. But uh, first, I think hitting people with sort of where you think things have gone off the rails a bit would be super useful. Yeah, I mean, I mean I lo- I'm an optimistic person. So part of me says where to begin with where things have gone wrong, but also feeling like loving the world, loving human beings, like very feeling very optimistic about, you know, maybe less in this moment than in a normal time, uh, but still. Um, you know, I, I grew up. I grew up in uh, Southwest Virginia on a farm. Um, I grew up Christian, evangelical Christian, and like had no neighbors. Just read books all the time, um, and like dreamed of being a writer, and was always on that path. Like moved to New York, became a music critic, um, and then met a friend, a guy named Perry Chen, who'd had the idea for crowdfunding. He thought of this notion, and um, and at the time, um, I like worked at a website, like in an editorial role. So that may be the most technical person I think he had met. Uh, and so we start making this company. And, and not uh, to derail you, but I found this super interesting. Is it true he was uh, a waiter? Yes. Yes. I mean, he had a, he was an artist, you know, he waited tables at a cool, at a cool restaurant. But it's not like he was uh, groomed with, you know, he was in Silicon Valley as part of Y Combinator, no, which is how no. people think this stuff normally starts. I had no idea that that was sort of the humble beginnings of Kickstarter, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, he's just a creative. I mean, the three of us who are co-founders—myself, Charles Adler, and, and Perry—we're all creative people who, um, you know, the kinds of things that we liked were uh, very hard to fund. You know, if you're the the creative industry before Kickstarter, you only got money for things if um, if they would be profitable, right? Because it's an investment. And but of course, most creative ideas like 
maybe you hope they'll become profitable, but really you're just trying to make the thing in your mind be real in the world. Like that's every artist's driving motivation. Um, but yet that that motivation is irrational and, and, and inadequate in that world before. Um, so what was interesting is like, we didn't want to be entrepreneurs. That wasn't like a dream, but the idea was so powerful of, of Kickstarter and what came to be called crowdfunding. And like to make it true, it had to be a company. So we just had to figure out how to do these things that we had never had interest in before. And what's interesting is that like, there's it's quite painful, uh, quite painful to be learning so iteratively, but also it lets you um, second guess a lot of assumptions that other people just like don't even think about. You're just like, why why does it work that way? And um, and so that led to like maybe a slower processing in some ways, like we wouldn't immediately jump to like what the obvious move is. Like an, an early example is the company was like six people and it was growing. It's about a year, we've been around for about a year and we needed to hire another a customer service person, a seventh person. And we suddenly realized that hiring that seventh person would mean we would have to add a second table in our office because we had one table that could fit six chairs around it. We're like, okay, we need the seventh person. We realized we can't fit it there. And we have this crisis of we're going to have to get a second table. And if we get a second table, that's not just opening up the seventh seat. That's opening up eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And like, and what does that mean? And you would think like growing and staffing is automatically a good thing. But for us, it's like, what does that do for control? What does that do for our goals? Are we sure? So there's that kind of mentality that that just comes of like, I, we don't belong here. Like I'm not native here. So it's just like the customs aren't, aren't as ordinary. Um, what really changed for me was that um, what I really saw, you know, from the beginning we said we never want to sell the company and we never want to try to IPO. We, we thought that for us coming from like music backgrounds and creative backgrounds, the idea of selling out, which is like to make something that other people enjoy and then ex financially exploiting that to remove yourself from your community. Uh, to us is like the worst thing you could do. So we always said to potential investors and everyone else, like think of Kickstarter as the Green Bay Packers of the internet. We want to be a public trust. We fulfill our role. We don't go, don't do things we shouldn't do. We're not stupid, you know, but you're just trying to do that one thing and be bound to the public interest for all time. You know, we're only taking 5% as a fee. That's enough to keep the lights on, but we're not going to get super rich off of this. And it's like a fair deal. And this is what the world needs. And success for Kickstarter is the long-term meaningness of that. Um, which was a weird thing to do, which is a weird, still a weird thing to do. And, and the, the paradigm that we were in of tech and VC is like, you raise huge funding rounds. You know, the, um, I became CEO about three and a half, four years in, uh, just being live. And within a month of me taking over, our two most significant competitors at the time raised $60 million in VC funding from like the biggest funds there were. And we, took a lot of pride in being scrappy, not doing that kind of thing, but you have this gut check moment of like, wow, do we need, do we need to do what everyone else is doing? But what we saw is that by them taking that money, they are in effect uh, signing a post-data check where every decision must work its way backwards to justifying whatever that valuation was, and that actually that's gonna harm them over the long term. It's not gonna bind them with the interests of their community. It's gonna create a lot of weird things. Um, but what we saw over and over was that everyone was just optimizing for this financial profit maximization, that, that every decision laddered back to that. And this is where you would see a company sending like two newsletters a day and spamming you. This is where like the weird things would happen where you're like, why, why did this company start treating me like shit all of a sudden? Like, why did this happen? Well, it's the answer is they had to grow, right? They had to grow. So can we remove ourselves from that game? Um, and so this led us to become a public benefit corporation. So like we re reincorporated the company um, to where we wouldn't just be expected to maximize profits as a for-profit company is traditionally expected to do, but that we would legally be required to balance our financial goals, our financial responsibilities with producing a positive benefit to society. And, and our idea was like, there are more people out there like us who don't quite fit into this world but who, but like could have a big impact. Business is an awesome way to have an impact. It's like so wide open, like people like us should definitely be going into business. And maybe, maybe if we carve out this path, it could be a little bit of a template. So the next person that comes up says, hey, I'm, I'm gonna go the Kickstarter route 
And instead of every potential funder looking at them like, what are you even talking about, which is what we got, instead they might say, okay, well, I could see what that looks like. Yes, that means a 3x return instead of a 100x return, what, whatever those things might be. Uh, really fast that, to, yeah. to sidestep, to take a tangent really fast. Tell me a little bit more. I don't know about public benefit corporations. Um, so obviously I know enough about your story to know that the big thing was it would keep you from getting a fiduciary lawsuit from your shareholder saying you guys weren't maximizing their shareholder value that I get, but is that the sole reason they exist or is there some other functional benefit that it provides? There's no functional benefit. There's no, there's no like, um, tax breaks or anything like that. There's no special status. Um, it was created by three entrepreneurs who actually started the and one street basketball league. Uh, really? Who, yes. Who became private equity guys. And then while doing private equity, um, just really felt like this notion that only financial valuations mattered was stupid. They're just like, this is dumb. And so they, these three guys went state by state to argue for a new classification of corporation that would have to balance these things, that would take the additional responsibility of producing a public benefit, and that would be legally held responsible to do that. It started in, it started in Pennsylvania, and they went state by state. But it was entirely around like, this model that we've been using is outdated, and, and, the, and really the selling point for a company is that you are distinguishing yourself from your competitors of saying we're not like them. Uh, but for us with Kickstarter, what we cared about was that the, our charter, which lays out like 15 commitments the company is, it has made, um, is, a, is a legal document that all future leaders of the company will be held accountable to. So now, even is it if, like a constitution where you can change it with a certain number of board yeah, votes? With, yeah, with, with two-thirds of shareholder votes, you can change, you can amend it. You also needed two-thirds of votes to approve it in the first place. So it, it is it is amendable, but it's a you know requires a process. Sure. Um, and yeah, and we just saw this as a way of distinguishing ourselves and and laying out those commitments in such a way that in the event that we as founders got hit by a bus or the company changed hands that you wouldn't just be relying on, oh, well, good people work here, thus we make good decisions. Instead, there is a more fundamental structural framework that says how decisions should be approached. I was CEO when we made this conversion, and to be honest, I didn't know if it was gonna be bullshit or not. Like, I, I didn't, I'm, like, I'm like, is this just a piece of paper or what? Is this gonna be real? And, and it was real. What I, found, what I found was that the kinds of things we wrote in our PPC charter were like, things that have always been true of us. Maybe we didn't, never articulated it, but like nothing in there is weird or out of character. But before values were like a, a guardrail, you would, you would bump up against maybe if you're like going astray. Uh, it's just sort of keep you on a path. As a PPC, instead I felt like these values, they were like middle of the road mandated. Like I have to maximize the value of like elevation of respect for creative people and, and culture. And like that needs to be a way that we think about our responsibility. And so to me, it made it made our values um, less of a passive thing and more of like a, a an imperative to act. And um, and so, yeah, just things would come up and you're like, well, we have to. We have to do like we're a PBC. You have to do this. And and even when we face like failure, for instance, not long after this, we had the worst like project failure to date, like a project that had raised a couple million dollars to make a drone just like just vanish, basically just had a, a bleak message without without saying much. But hey, we're a PBC. So what are we supposed to do? So we went and we found the toughest investigative journalist we knew of who had been like really hard on us in the past. And we hired them and we said, we want to pay you to write the story of what happened here. You can interview me. You can interview everyone you can. We will promote the story because we just want people to, we want to try to solve for this so that like this could be a learning moment and we don't want to hide from this, but like this feels like the accountable thing to do. So like there are, there were those kinds of ways of thinking that just felt I don't know, just a different mind, a different mindset. Um, All right. So this feeds into the whole concept behind the book and what our future could look like that I find so interesting. So you've got this, basically the hypothesis and correct me where I go wrong here. The hypothesis is basically we've gotten into financial optimization to the exclusion of all others. We've sort of forgotten about the the humanity behind all of this. And if we're focusing on GDP, gross domestic product, 
And we think that that tells us whether the world is going in the right direction or the wrong direction. We don't factor in um, happiness, joy, accountability, things like that, that we're, we're going to have a very serious sort of um, emotional existential crisis if nothing else. Is that relatively accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that um, over the last 50 years, we've become obsessed with um, financial growth. And, it, and me it's, as a country or as a globe? I would say the West primarily. I would say the West and that and that has had a lot of power. It, it began in the U.S. Um, and, and this belief that all decisions uh, like I believe there is an implicit belief that the the correct choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And I've been in enough executive meetings at Kickstarter and, and other companies where routinely you face 50 50 decisions where option A has a clear financial outcome and then there's some downsides that are hard to quantify but like they're there and there's option b that has a lesser financial outcome and less of those and also less of those downsides and nine times out of ten they're going to choose option a because uh, it's justifiable you can only defend option b in a crisis where you feel like you have to apologize that's the only time you generally go for the one that's not maxing out for that and it sounds innocent enough it sounds innocent enough but when that happens repeatedly, uh, you see a decay in, in other spaces. But I think our focus on financial value has been has been perfectly rational. You know, there's like a Keynesian like economic argument, Milton Friedman argument for like the rationality of financial value. GDP does correlate to many positive things about society. There's a lot there for sure. It's not like we've been off the rails wrong, uh, but it's gotten out of control. And the the fascinating opportunity that we have now is that. The, the ability to define new values, to distribute goods, to make decisions has, has never been greater, right? Technology, technology allows us to measure things in such more intricate ways. Like if you can imagine in the past, someone says, let's, let's make a decision other than money. It's like, okay, well, what, what are we looking at? What, what are we counting here? It's, it's hard to say. But in the book, I give an example of Adele, the pop star Adele, um, she goes on tour. Uh, when her tickets go on sale, they immediately get bought by scalpers, and then people have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars more. Adele found this startup that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to her as an artist. It analyzed their listening data, whatever, and allowed her to invite the top 20 percentile Adele fans in each market, offer them a ticket for 50 bucks. Um, they could resell the ticket if they want, but and the show's still Adele made money. But the idea was that for maximizing for this loyal communal value set, that there would be a different kind of experience. One thing that I think is important to note about that story is that, and you talk about this in the book, that artists can actually cooperate with Ticketmaster, maybe others, to actually get a portion of the scalped price. So it's not like yes. for Adele it didn't matter. She actually could have benefited benefited from that, which I, I found it made the argument even more compelling to me. Yeah. And so for Adele, Adele is just looking at this with a, a different value set, right? She's still thinking of her self-interest, like she's playing shows, she's like making money. Um, but yet what she is optimizing for is not her own take. She's optimizing for a fan's experience. And, and again, it sounds very basic, but like to do this in a way that's mathematical, that's replicable, that's scalable, uh, to me suggests a different kind of transaction and a different kind of decision where um, it is building on top of that financial value. Like this wouldn't work for Adele if she was losing money every show, right? Like that, that wouldn't work. She's satisfying a threshold. But the point is that she's only trying to satisfy that threshold and the opportunity she sees is a layer above that. Now, what's interesting is that this is self-interested for Adele, right? If she does this, she creates more loyalty. And that probably creates even longer term fans. And you could very easily argue, well, this works out better for Adele in the long run. And that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It could work out better for the long run for all of us too, right? This same, this same kind of thinking um, and the same way of approaching our goals of not just maximizing for now me uh, is that's, that's the secret. That's the secret. That's the secret to more meaningful success. That's the secret to, to being meaningful in, in culture. Um, and so Adele's choice is, yes, it's, it's easier for someone like her or Taylor Swift to give up some of the money, right? But 
We also all know that there are moments where you don't take the job at the higher salary because the commute's too long, because it requires too many other sacrifices, right? We as individuals, I think, know how to navigate those kinds of situations. They're hard, they're hard. They're especially hard if we're in a place of desperation. But collectively, collectively, it's like we've given up. We, we, we aren't even trying to make decisions for anything other than financial outcomes, in part because we've lacked the language or the justification. And so I believe my, my book is a part of a, uh, not, this is not, I mean, I'm the only person making this argument, uh, but I think that this is the trend that's happening now. And, and I think in, in this idea of proposed bentoism, I think I have a, a practical way for us to get there. Like very right. practical. Don't, don't tell people yeah. what it is yet. Yeah. We're, we're going to go hard on that. Yeah. First, one thing that I found really helpful in the book, you have this key idea that you touch on, which is, Hey, look, I know it feels like it has always been this way, but I promise you it hasn't. You outline the three-point shot in basketball, and you talk specifically about the economists, their arguments that have led to where we're at now, that it's not as long-term of a thing as we think it is. And I was shocked by that. I was like, yeah. whoa, Like because I was born after this started, it does feel to me like this is the only way. When I started my last company, um, dude, we honestly, everybody was like, all right, this is just dumb. We were like, we're no longer going to make profitability our highest value. We're going to make adding value to the customer, the thing that we're a total slave to. And that just seemed so counterintuitive, but we were reacting to the way that we had done business before and felt like we were suffering. Forget like, I'm sure the customer was getting less value than they could have from us as well. But like, even that felt like, even if we're serving the customer, well, we're not having fun. Like this isn't fun. Like trying to be a slick marketer just is not interesting to me. And so after doing that for years, realizing that money wasn't making me happy, we had this total reaction against that. And we said, all right, we have a new North star and that North star is going to be value creation. Mm -hmm. And so, but I felt like I'm going against like the way the world is. It never occurred to me that there was like a demarcation point not that long ago where it was like, Hey, everybody gather around real quick. We're going to optimize financially and boom. And now we're sort of seeing the world carried out across that. Give us some of those quick benchmarks of how this comes to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, if you look at how companies operated in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, it, really 1970 is kind of the point where the mentality shifts. Uh, but in those earlier decades, like the idea of stakeholder capitalism, which is like the most progressive idea, like that was normal. That was like the non-woke, boring thing to do. There's a great visualization that GM made in 1955 to show their year, and it shows like how money was distributed. And they brag about the high taxes they pay. They brag about the worker raises. Like they they showed everyone benefits from GM. Like here is here is why we are a good company. You know, companies were were judged by the number of employees. Like employees were judged by their loyalty to the company and vice versa. And this was just the value set. And and my theory for why this was the dominant value set for American capitalism in the 1950s and 60s, I think it's about the Cold War. We think of the U.S. like the Cold War is the U.S. and the Soviet Union locked in this like military detente. Um, and there was that competition, but there was also a economic competition to see which system uh, of social organization, capitalism or communism, could best provide for the middle class, like which system could produce the biggest middle class. So really the scoreboard of the Cold War was the middle class of the Soviet Union versus the middle class of Americans. And so that bound every company and everyone in America to this common purpose of of bettering the middle class because we got to win like capitalism faced this existential competition and competition made it better. Now what happened is capitalism crushed communism and then it became a a lethargic monopolist as often happens when you don't have anyone to push you anymore. Um, But it really changed when uh, there was a, a clear moment in 1970, Milton Friedman, you know, amazing uh, economist thinker, um, made this case that um, that idea that businesses should be thinking about social responsibility, the stakeholder model idea. Uh, that Can was you define even, that? What, what does stakeholder model mean? So, sta- so stakeholder capitalism means that uh, you make decisions thinking about uh, all stakeholders, which are employees, uh, investors, suppliers and the community around your business. So like the families of your employees. Uh, This is like my favorite business guru is a man named Konosuke Matsushita, this Japanese man who started Panasonic. He was a big proponent of this, but it's just this idea that like 
you as a company have a lot of responsibility. You're a meeting point of many different parts of society. This is what makes business so powerful. And that power comes with responsibility. Um, and, and in the Vietnam War era, um, this really got kicked up a notch where people were saying, well, what, what do companies need to be doing for the greater good? Like Americans are sacrificing their lives, people are dying, but like what, what does it mean for a company to do that? And that's when Friedman came out with this essay that said the only social responsibility that a business has is to profit. And, and profit is the only goal and, and profit maximization is the only rational outcome a business should pursue. And this idea changed how businesses ran. And, 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 it, and it, what was so perfect for it was that in 1973, America had a major economic crisis. There was the oil, cra the oil crash, uh, inflation, stagflation. And this is the moment when Nixon in the US moved off of the gold standard uh, and decided it would no longer be fiat money or it would be fiat money and that we would just print our way out of this crisis. And from that point on, America's policy became we must produce economic growth every year, no matter what, even if just to pay down the debt that we're building up on an annual basis. But like the, the, the operating mentality um, for every business began to change. Uh, and, and, and you started seeing things like private equity uh, start to reach in and take control of these companies. And, you know, if you trace the wages of American workers, there's a point where productivity keeps growing, wages stay flat. If you if you track like job security, uh, if you track all kinds of things, there's just this great divergence where inequality really began. And in the book, I call it the mullet economy, where I say, you know, for most people, it's like business in front, like the mullet, where their earnings are getting cut every year. Like that's 90 percent of people like offshoring, no more raises, greater job insecurity. Meanwhile, for the for the top one to ten percent, it's this glorious mullet going down the back. Where over the same period of time since 1973, the average American worker has gotten a 10 percent raise adjusted for inflation. Over those same years, the average American executive has gotten a 1,000 percent raise. And these are directly correlated. These are directly correlated. So this was like a a philosophical shift for business. And and again, that like made sense because there was a crisis moment of hey, our companies have become too big. The economy's not working the way we thought. Vietnam has screwed us up. Where the hell are we? And a crisis, you go looking for what, how do we solve this? And Friedman had this very simple idea of we should just orient around economic growth. If we only focus on economic growth, that will solve the rest of it. And, you know, because we can convert money into any other values. If you make enough money, people can give money away to charity to solve the social ills that come of that. And so this was just this thesis. And it, I mean, it's not, it's not wrong. I believe that it is incomplete. I believe it's incomplete. Um, and so just we've been operating on that playbook for the last 50 years. Um, one, of the ways, one of the ways I show how it took, took hold is this amazing study that UCLA has done um, since the 1960s, where every year UCLA asks incoming college freshmen all across the U.S. Um, a lot of questions. And one of them is about their goals in life. And it lists like 10 different life goals, like having a family, being good at your job, um, being an artist. And, and one of them has to do with money, being well off financially. And, uh, and in 1970, the percentage of incoming college freshmen who said being well off financially was essential or very important was just 28%, just 28%. That year, the number one life goal was to, quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life. 84% of students said that was essential. Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine? The most recent year the study came out, 2017, uh, the biggest life goal among college freshmen to be rich. 82% say that is essential. Less than half say that having a, a, a philosophy on life is essential anymore. And if you look at these numbers over 50 years, every year it's surveyed, 50, 60 million students have taken this. Like every value is flat. Like Having a family, stay the same. Being creative, stay the same. Being good at your job, those rates have stayed the same. It's this growth of being rich um, that has just really, it's its shocking when you look at it. It's just like, just a straight up into the right line. So at, just our whole value system has become, has really shifted dramatically. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's hard to recognize the water you swim in, right? Yeah, David Foster Wallace, this is water. You talk about generational change. It takes about 30 years to have yeah. change. And that brings us to bentoism, the bento box. The yeah. thing now, I'm dying. I needed people to understand all of that so yeah. that we can get into this. Um, it's a really interesting concept. Lay that out for people. 
and then know that I'm going to press you until I understand oh, how to yeah, lose totally. my bento box totally. to, to get to decision-making. Well, I, um, I, you know, I just, uh, I'm a curious person. I love to read. I love to understand. And I'm like, I'm very non-judgmental. Like I really, I, 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 there's a, I learned a phrase recently of meta-modernism. After post-modernism is meta-modernism. And meta-modernism is to look at things without judgment and simply look for what's useful. And the idea is that Sign like this is up. this is the this is the current view is that like you can hate Amazon while also reading like Bezos's shareholder letter every year because he's <laughs> like brilliant, right? You know, and it's like there's this you're just simply looking for the utility of things and that this is like this emergent mindset. So I I again I'm like I'm not a I'm not a bomb thrower. I'm a reformer. I'm like a you Dude, know, I love a, that about your book. Honestly, yeah. I wasn't um, I'm never sure when people have sort of this grand idea of where we're going to go if it's just a reaction against what we have or if it's like you said finding the utility. Um, and that comes across in every every interview I've heard with you certainly in the book. Um, it's very even-handed, like you said. It's not like capitalism is some evil thing. It's just incomplete. And so, you know, where do we yeah. go? What do we take that's working? What do we discard that's not? Uh, I find that very useful. I started giving talks while I was CEO about this idea of, like, there's this value system that's running away. Um, I first started talking about it when I saw my neighborhood in New York City, uh, the Lower East Side, flip from gentrification. And just, like, watching this insanity of every storefront around me turning into a bank and being like, what, how does this make sense? And, um, and just started talking about this in a way that it was like people could feel it. Um, so I, I spent, I spent a couple of years or many years just trying to understand this, reading a lot of philosophy, a lot of economics, like kind of going to the sources, like what is the, what is the argument for utilitarianism? Why is money the most utilitarian value? What is the, how have we defended other values? And my belief, my assumption was always that financial value is simply the first value we've learned to rationally express. That financial value is a proxy for goodness that is mathematical and that is tradable and that is universal and that that process can be repeated for other values. And that's simply, the money is simply the first way that we did that. And, but like, but what is this justification for money mattering? And so one day I was just doodling in my notebook and I drew a, a, a hockey stick graph, uh, you know, a chart, this classic Silicon Valley chart of a line slipping up to the right. And I was just drawing, I was trying to visualize self-interest. So I drew this hockey stick chart and, um, and I had this thought of like this x-axis along the bottom, it's measuring time. And so it goes all the way from now far into the future. So I just, my notebook, I just drew that line out farther. And I thought this y-axis measuring self-interest it also grows because as our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. Like for me, the difference between being single and having a family is enormous or being a solo entrepreneur and having employees is enormous. So that why goes from me to us as it goes up, as your self-interest grows, so does that responsibility. And so suddenly this like hockey stick was just a tiny slice of this large picture that was quite mysterious to me. What is all this other space? And so I turned it into a very simple two by two, just drawing lines through it. And suddenly I had these four boxes and they, they lined up with these axes where in the bottom left, there was now me. This is the hockey stick graph. This is what, what I want to need right now. This is how I think of my selfish desires on a day-to-day -day basis. On the bottom right was future me. And future me is this older, wiser version of me that either becomes true or not true every day based on the choices I make. You know, I think of my future me as like my Obi-Wan, my inner Obi-Wan Kenobi. How do, how do I get there? Like, who, what decisions does Obi-Wan make today to become Obi-Wan? Um, my now us, so the top left is now us, that, that us space. And now us is like the, the people I rely on and who rely on me, my friends, my family. And early on, I had to say that like us us is not every living thing in the world. It's not the global humanist us. It is the us of like the people that you really care about, the people you have to look out for. And then finally in the top right, there's future us, which is imagining that same group of people 30 years from now. So probably your kids and their kids too. And I had this flash of like, whoa, my, my self-interest is not just this now me space, which is all I've ever really been able to think about. It's actually all four of these spaces because every decision I make impacts future me it impacts now us like 
my footprints are all over the place, even though I have no idea that's what I'm doing. And so I drew this graph and next to it, I thought, what is this a picture of? And I just wrote beyond near-term orientation. Like this is just a simple two by two matrix to see beyond your near-term orientation. And then I realized that was an acronym for BENTO. <laughs> BENTO. And just a week before, my wife had shown me this book about Ikigai, Japanese life's purpose, Ikigai. And it talked about the bento box. And she just pointed this out to me because it said the bento has the four compartments and a lid that lets you have a variety of dishes, not too much of any one thing. And that the bento honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is this is a bento box, but for my values and decisions, a way for me to not just overindulge on right now, but to leave space for tomorrow and to think about these other parts of my life. And so that immediately began, became really kind of the UI I used to make all decisions in my life and, and to navigate my life. Because what you realize is that in each one of those spaces are values, our priorities, our goals, are things that are uniquely important to you. And the opportunity that we have is to make decisions that light up all four of those boxes that are self-coherent and like the fullest possible way. And once you see that, and once you begin making choices like that, you discover that like, this is what it means to be in a flow state of life, right? Like we know how to be in a flow state maybe when we're working out or like dancing or hiking or doing drugs or whatever those things are. But like, how do you get in a flow state on a Tuesday at three o'clock when like you don't like anything you have to do? This shows you, right? This shows you what it means to, to live up to yourself, to, to, to step into the fullest version of yourself, to be coherent. Um, Can you define so, yeah. that? I, I think I know what you mean by self-coherent. You talk a lot about that in the book. Yeah. Um, I like the concept, but I think giving it to people in like a, a fully yeah. explained would be useful. You know, I think of it as being, you know, in integrity with who I am and that like my best moments, my best moments are when I am like actualizing all parts of myself, when I'm making a choice that like fulfills my goals that, um, it, I'll give you a couple examples of like ways I've used this to show what I mean. Um, you know, one of the ways I, I make a living is by doing uh, speaking, like paid speaking. And, um, and I, will sometimes get invited to speak by companies that I don't like, that feel off values to me. And I've always said no. And uh, and not long after I, I uh, had came up, come up with the bento, I got asked to do another one of these. And when I made my bento, I went through this process of self-inquiry to find what was in each space for me. So I, I said, well, what does my now me want and need? And I thought, well, what do, what do I need on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I need, you know, financial security. I need... Uh, a challenge, intellectual challenge, I need uh, my health. You know, basically you need the bottom two rows of Maslow's hierarchy. So I like listed all those things out and I wanted to come up with a simple phrase to encapsulate what was most me about that. So I said, show people the matrix. My now me value is to show people the matrix. Whenever I'm doing something that's showing people the matrix, like that's me in sync with who I am. My future me voice, uh, well I came to realize that's the voice that says don't sell out. This, this voice that's always telling me it's like made Kickstarter be what it has to be. Like be lo be true to your values. Never let go of that. That's what's so important about you. And also that I need to create harmony. I'm a child of divorce. And so I'm always like trying to bridge conflict. Uh, so my future me values are, are don't sell out and create harmony. So when I make decisions, I'm always looking to do that. My now us is about deep time, real deep time with a select number of friends. And my future us is about building a better matrix. And so when I got asked to do this talk, I isolated and asked each of these voices what it should say, just simple yes, no. So I asked my now me, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? My now me wants me to show people the matrix. So it said, yeah, dude, that sounds cool. Let's do it. Like, this is what we're about. My now us, that was a check, yes. My now us says deep time. It's like, well, you know, an hour and a half to talk about ideas. That's cool. Check. Yeah, we'll, we're in. My future us wants to build a better matrix, says Yo, dude, you can't be preaching to the choir. Like, if you want to build a better matrix, like, this is where you got to be. Like, double check for future us. And then my future me voice, which says, don't sell out, says, no, you're selling out. You're just trying to do this for the money. You're trying to justify something that is actually against your values. 
And suddenly that voice that had been pissed off in the past, I saw it for what it was. It was this bouncer. It was this big dude looking out for my values, right? He's just standing there being like, nah, you can't come in. But yet I could see the full picture. I could see that that gave me the agency to tap the bouncer on the shoulder and say, no, no, it's cool. I've got this. (laughs) And I ended up making a 180 degree different decision than I would have before starting that process. And I did it knowing that I was coherent, that I wasn't betraying who I was, that I wasn't, this wasn't something I needed to feel guilty about. This is actually something that truly reflects what is important about me and, and, and allowed me to overrule what had felt like one of the most important parts of me, right? That I don't do things like this. And, and, and so that ability to just sort of put myself in context let me let me make a wiser choice. And and so I, I approach all decisions in that way now. And, and the bento shows, like I show how for a smoker, a smoker, like smoking is rational from a now me perspective because now me is addicted to nicotine and quitting sucks. Even though for future me, now us, future us, all those say, dude, you should quit. What are you doing? But, but now me wants you to keep smoking. In the same way, sacrifice is unthinkable if we only see now me, because sacrifice means giving up something now to get something more later, even though if you like put the question of sacrifice to your bento, you would see a red X and now me, and you'd see a green check in the other three boxes. For the world today where we only see now me, that is an unthinkable decision, right? Sacrifice is unthinkable. Why would I do that? That's irrational. And so it became this way of, of sort of a bird's eye view to take yourself out of this like interrogation box view of the world of like, we're only seeing 24 hours ahead of us. And I've come to think of it as I have expanded my perimeter of self-interest, right? If you expand your perimeter, that's what you have to defend. That's what you have to be mindful of. And so my perimeter includes us and my perimeter includes the future. And what that means is that I can think about future events before they happen. I don't have to wait for something to reach me to act. I can position myself, I can anticipate, I can try to manipulate the future to what I want it to be. Not that I'm gonna be 100% successful at this, but honestly, most people are blind, right? So the one-eyed king rule. So even just having a sense of that space gives you such a leg up and allows you to consistently make decisions towards a destination. And that, you know, my experience as a CEO, everything like that is the single hardest thing to do. So any tool that allows you to make consistent choices in a direction like the the exponential compound interest of that it, it is just like out of this world especially when most people have no idea what they're doing talk to me about how you develop or hear maybe is the right word the voices of the different boxes yeah. in the bento box i know you've done a lot of journaling you seem to have an uncommon level of self-awareness and i'm curious if there's a process behind that that people can leverage that maybe aren't as um, aren't at the same level of self-awareness, I don't know if that comes naturally or if you yeah. developed it. Um, but if you know, assume that somebody doesn't have a high degree, how would you? Um, what tools and tactics do you have for them to use? I make every serious decision. My wife and I both make every serious decision using the bento, like asking each box, just like does this does this vibe with us or not? And we even have a family bento, and then I do a weekly journaling where I use the bento to. Um, create my to-do list, right? Because my to-do lists are always just like whatever the work stuff, errands I have to do. Um, But yet, like to manifest the world I want, I have to move beyond that now me space, right? And so that's, it's become a a ritual, a way to reshape my time. So it's, it's become a, like, I really think of it as a user interface for life. It's a UI, you know, what's brilliant about philosophy is it lets us understand the world. What's hard about philosophy is that it doesn't exactly give us a tool to apply it. I think the philosophy of the 21st century is UI. It's UI. It's things. It's the metamodernism. What can we apply? What can we use? What's useful? What has utility? And, and I believe that this shift of expand, that expanding our self-interest from now me to these four spaces, that perimeter of self-interest, that expansion, I believe that is the linchpin change that like everything else changes as a result of. All right. So assuming that we can get people to adopt that, um, let's take a harder case with the bento box that you Mm -hmm. covered in the book. And it was whether or not you took a family vacation. And I was like following the check marks. I'm like, yeah, he's going on the vacation. And then like, we didn't take the vacation. So how do you, how do you weight the different boxes? Like, cause you, 
I think three of the four boxes, if I remember right, were all yes, take it, but yes. one said no, and you ended up not taking it. So how in that moment did you decide to weight the different boxes? Well, because certain decisions have more relevance to certain spaces than others. So it's like, um, you know, if, if you're having a decision about that involves other people, you know, like that us space probably is the rightful ruler of that outcome rather than like the now me space. Um, so it's not that, I don't think all four boxes are always weighted the same. Um, and just some, they, they are, they take more importance. So in that one, my now me was that I had a deadline for the book. And if I go on vacation, I'm definitely not going to hit my deadline. And it's like, I think that ultimately has to overrule these things. Um, but it's, you know, it's, you do get into a lot of, um, I mean, I, I've like, taught the bento model to a couple thousand people at this point in workshops and and i help people make decisions and frequently people get stuck two bentos say one thing two say another thing three say one one say the other and you're like what do we do and what you see is that this maps out why certain decisions are bad for us if you can use the bento to see what short-termism is to see what sacrifice looks like to see what probably the most common mixed response i get um, are people whose they're now us, now me answers to the question are no. Their future us, future me questions are yes. And this is always about a dream. It's always about where they want to go, the job they really want to have, the thing they really want to do. And now says no, but future says yes. And so then they say, well, what do I do? I'm stuck. But this is where by seeing that full picture, you are empowered because I say to them, well, then we have a next question, which is what does it take for your now us and now me to say yes? Why do they say no? Is it you need emotional validation? Is it financial validation? Like, what is it that, that needs? Okay, well, let's break that down. Let's make a goal. Let's imagine, well, what is the point in which now me can become a yes, right? And let's, that could be very simple. You know, let's just like iterate towards that. But rather than being stuck with this, like these emotional feelings, like I would be when, you know, a weird company would ask me to speak and I would just be mad. Like, let's not be mad. Let's not be frustrated. Let's Let's take our power. Let's take our seat. Let's have some agency in this. Let's break this down. And so, you know, my, my experience is that CEOs, leaders, I mean, everyone's just trying to do the best they can, the best they can with what we know. And, and I think that this is the, this is the missing information um, that can allow us to make even better decisions. Dude, well said. Well said. And thank you for taking that to such a tactical place. I love the way you think. I love how thoughtful you are about this stuff. Um, where can people connect with you and continue to engage with you and these ideas? I'm all, I'm all over the place. Uh, well, there's bentoism.org. Um, you can, like, it guides you through the process. It, it's like a web version of, um, of teaching you how to build out your bento. Um, it's also just an awesome website. It's like, it's like going to a spa. It's so relaxing. I just, I would really encourage you to do it. Um, um, I also do these 20 minutes every Sunday. I get on Zoom with whoever joins, normally about 50 people or so, and we do uh, journaling together. We journal our week ahead. So we, we tap into our bentos together. We all write together. We have some shared accountability. There's a Google Doc where we all say, here's what I'm going to do this week. And that's just a very organic community that, I don't know, once COVID started, I'm like, well, I'm doing this anyway. Why not just turn on the camera? And that's becoming something really special. Um, and then I'm just online at whystrickler.com. But folks are, wel are welcome to join the weekly bento. That's just bit.ly slash weekly bento. Um, I send out invites on Thursdays and, and people can come. But I, I'm, all, you know, I'm all about just giving people practical tools um, to help them get where they, they know they need to go. Like, People are smart. People know. People know when things are right or not right. Like, you know, we all have this capacity. It's just we're lacking the language. We're lacking the tools, and uh, but they're here. They're here. All right. I think I have a guess as to what you're going to say, but my final question: What's the impact that you want to have on the world? I want to expand how we define our self-interest from just now me to be now me, future me, now us, and future us. Uh, I think our world is trapped by a limited perspective. And expanding the perimeter of self-interest is what will finally let us make choices that benefit us, not just now, but in the future as well. I would say that is very coherent with uh, your message, man. Thank you, dude, so much for coming on. I really, really enjoyed your book. 
Um, I think that you're thinking about some incredible things and you've got an amazing idea for a way forward. Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, guys, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. If you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish, and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me, I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number, dot com slash impact. Check it out. What's up, guys? If there's something going on with your body that you just can't quite figure out what it's coming from, I'm going to bet that the problem has something to do with your gut health. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everybody's body is different, and that's why our sponsor, Viome, uses an at-home gut intelligence test to analyze your microbiome. Then they provide you with a personalized pre- and probiotic formula that can help restore balance to your body. They also recommend what foods you should eat and which ones you shouldn't eat based on your test results. I've had the founder of Viome, Naveen Jain, on the show several times, and he always has incredible updates about the science linking your microbiome to the rest of your health. And as you guys know, with everything that Lisa went through, we know firsthand that your gut health, if you fix that, you're going to solve so many other problems in your life. Go to tryviome.com slash impact and use code impact to get 20% off your first three months and free shipping. All right, that's T-R-Y-V-I-O-M-E.com slash impact with the code impact for 20% off your first three months and free shipping.